This is Transparency, a podcast by Gender Dysphoria Alliance, hosted by Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Each week we'll be joined by people who have personal or professional experience with gender dysphoria and physical transition. We'll also discuss how our trans experiences relate to the concept of gender identity. Join us for a compassionate yet heterodox approach to the question of trans. All right, welcome back to Transparency, everyone. Um, we've got my co-host Aaron Terrell back this week. How are you feeling, Aaron? A lot better, much, <laughs> much better. Thank you. Good. Um, our guest today is Dr. Ray Blanchard. We've been really um, looking forward to this conversation. Uh, is it okay if I call you call you Ray? Yes, please do. Um, Ray's one of our advisors for the Gender Dysphoria Alliance. Um, you know, on on topics. Um, that he's researched and uh, he's a professor of um, psychiatry at the University of, of Toronto um, and, and probably best known to our viewers um, for his two-part typology. Um, and that's that's what we wanted to talk to you about today, Ray, was just to, to better our understanding of the two types of gender dysphoria that, that you were seeing and that you were, that you were researching. Um, so that's where we'd like to dive in. Okay, I can talk about that. I, I started working at a gender identity clinic in 1980. And uh, at that point, in 1980, many uh, clinical researchers had written the opinion that there was more than one type of gender dysphoria or more than one type of transsexualism, however they were talking in those days. So there was, even in 1980, there was no question that transsexuals were not a homogeneous monolithic group, that there were different kinds. So I didn't, I didn't bring anything new with that. The question in 1980 was, well, okay, fine. There are, there's more than one kind, but what are those kinds? And when I studied the writings of previous clinicians, they, um, some people had three types, some people had two types, some people had five types. Uh, the labels were different. The type of transsexual that was nominated as the quote unquote true transsexual was different from one clinician to another. So the task I set myself was, all right, is there a way to examine uh, the, the different uh, possible different types of transsexual and narrow them down to basic categories that, that might look like more than, you know, and, and well, let me just leave it at that. I wanted to find out in this chaos of so many different transsexual types, what were the basic kinds? And so I started by, and I was focusing at that point on male to females, because in those days, uh, female to male transsexuals were relatively homogeneous. You hardly saw uh, anything but female to males who said, I want to become a man and I want to have a relationship with a woman. That was, that was the overwhelming majority of those cases. So I focused my research on the biological male cases because that was where you saw this huge variety of presentations. And that was also where the clinical literature had postulated many different classification schemes. I just began by saying, well, uh, I, I use something that was from one of the early typologies from Magnus Hirschfeld, the guy who invented the word transvestism. And so I divided the biological males into homosexual, 
according to biological sex. You know, when I say homosexual in relation to transsexual, I mean you're interested in the same chromosomal sex as yourself. So uh, Hirschfeld's typology had been homosexual, heterosexual, asexual, and bisexual. So I divide, I, I, my strategy was to divide the biological males into these four groups and then compare them on a variety of variables. And my conclusion from that was that they boiled down to two basic types. One we might call homosexual and one we might call non-homosexual. The non-homosexuals were the heterosexuals, the bisexuals, and the asexuals. And they were more similar with regard to age at presentation, with regard to uh, early childhood signs of cross-gender identity, uh, with, with regard to acknowledging some history of sexual arousal with cross-dressing. So I said, okay, these three groups, asexual, bisexual, and heterosexual, these are really subtypes of heterosexual transsexualism. And these guys are all different from the homosexual transsexuals who presented at a very young age, uh, who rarely gave any, uh, any self-report that seemed like sexual arousal with cross-gender ideation. Then my next question was, well, what do the three non-homosexual types have in common? At that point, the only language or the only conceptual apparatus that would have been available to say, this is what these three groups have in common was what was called fetishistic transvestism. Some history of sexual arousal, meaning quite simply in a male erection and masturbation or maybe spontaneous ejaculation. That was, that was uh, how somebody might've characterized the three non-homosexual groups in 1980. By the end of that decade, I felt that the concept of transvestic fetishism was not only too narrow, but that it actively misled people in thinking about the phenomena. And so I developed the concept of autogynophilia as something that would include transvestism, but was a much broader category of sexual arousal that a biological male feels when uh, seeing or thinking of himself as being a female. Um, and that, that, so that, that was what I thought, this is your common denominator of the three non-homosexual types. It's, it was the common denominator of the three non-homosexual types. And it also linked them to those cases that might be called transvestites uh, traditionally called transvestites who only get cross-dressed or are interested in seeming feminine during states of high sexual arousal and otherwise switch back to being like men. And then there was the one final point I want to make about why I introduced the concept of autogynophilia, not only because it linked the non-homosexual types, but also because I, I th thought there needs to be a bridge between patients who at the age of eight or 12 or 14 are borrowing their mother's panties, masturbating, and then putting the panties back and returning to life as a boy who does normal boyish things. 
And then 30 years later, they're presenting with a request to have their penis removed and replaced with a neo-vagina. And so the other function of autogynophilia was to be, what is the link between masturbating and women's underwear at one stage of life and wanting your body uh, surgically operated on to simulate a female phenotype at another stage of life. Just looking at underwear or females garments didn't make a very good link. And, but whereas the idea of being sexually aroused by the idea of being a woman makes the link from eroticizing clothing to a foundation for wanting a woman's whole body. So that in a nutshell is why I started the typology and what the main outlines of it are. Because you had divided AGP into, into separate groups as well, like partial AGP and, and, and what you touched on, that, that the um, <clears throat> target of arousal isn't necessarily the, the body being female in all cases. But I think I read that those that, that um, do fantasize about having a female body are more likely to want um, the medicalization later. Yeah, that was one of the studies I did during that late 80s, early 90s period. And that's basically a formalization of common sense. You know, if the hottest thing to you is putting on a bra, well, then all you have to do is yeah. put on a bra. If you're really hot at the idea of having women's breasts, then then you need to have surgery to get women's breasts. One oh, thing I, that, I, uh, oh, go on. No, 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 go ahead. I was just going to say one thing that, that comes up to mind for me, and I think when I was first kind of reading about the typology specifically autogynophilia is the, the, the connection between um, being aroused and masturbating to the idea of being a woman and then subsequently having surgery to essentially eradicate that, that sexual component of it. Those, I think that's a leap that's very difficult for people to make the, the, the autogynophile who seeks orchiectomy and vaginoplasty. Um, it seems to, to me, even uh, counter counterproductive, but oftentimes a lot of them um, find quite quite you know a, a bit of relief and satisfaction in having that surgery. I think there's also a high regret rate, um, but uh, but I was yeah wondering if you could talk about that a bit. Is the um, you know like how how does one go from being aroused, masturbating to the idea, and then you know, once you've had, once you've had, um, you know, SRS, that eradicates that ability, right? It, it kind of eradicates the sexual component of it all, which is the, which is the catalyst. Um, I, maybe I'm misrepresenting there, but um, if you could talk about that. Actually, the point that you're raising was one that I thought about and worried about a lot at the time that I was working on these problems, because it is, a, it does seem very paradoxical. If you're sexually aroused at the idea of being a woman, then what happens when by surgical and hormonal, hormonal means, uh, all sexual arousal at the thought of, of being a woman is eradicated? Shouldn't you stop wanting to be uh, like a woman? That, that worried me. And uh, there had been clinical notions at the time that, uh, that are in line with the concern you're raising. Uh, some clinicians had said, well, the way that you need to do a differential diagnosis between a transvestite and a transsexual is to give them estrogen. If this is a true transsexual, they will still want to be um, 
they will still want to transition. If it's only a transvestite, then giving them medications that lower libido will eliminate the gender dysphoria. So people thought that way. And I, I think all of that, you have to get past the idea of thinking of sexually motivated behaviors as behaviors that are accompanied by an erection. Because, you know, in real life, uh, the, there's a constellation of behaviors that have to do with reproduction. They include getting sexually excited, getting an erection, wanting to have something like intercourse or stimulating your penis in a situation that is like intercourse. But regular sexuality also includes falling in love and pair bonding. And people do not have an erection every time they're in the presence of their of their wife, or they don't lubricate every time they're in the presence of their husband. And I, I think it's important to understand that uh, when we talk about a behavior being erotically motivated, it's a shorthand way of, of indicating something that's in the reproductive sphere of human life, and that something can be rooted in that part of life, but doesn't, doesn't mean that you have to be in a visibly sexually excited state all the time. And I made the analogy in some of my earlier writings that uh, an, an autogynophile does not have to be sexually aroused all the time when they're being female, uh, just as uh, pair bonded animals, pair bonded geese don't copulate continuously. And men and women who are have deeply committed pair bonded relationships are not having intercourse twice and three times a day. And that was how I saw that. Uh, what seems to be a paradox here really, in my opinion, results from too narrow a concept of what behaviors should be classified or identified as erotic. Makes sense. I hope so. I, I think it's a difficult concept. Um, well, uh, that's all I'll say about it. I'll let, I'll let you continue. Well, it, it's um, something that came to mind. As, uh, I was reading a, a Reddit post recently by a young, um, uh, what I would classify as, as AGP. He was basically saying, hey, is this weird that I really want to be a woman and then I get off and suddenly I don't care about being a woman anymore. And I think, and obviously that's Kind of characteristic of the of the autogynophile MTF uh, experience on a on a really simplistic level, right? But so my you know when you carry that thought forward to to the logical conclusion is like okay, so post climax that's the same as post orchiectomy. It's like it seems to me like once in in a lot of cases you know once that surgery takes place that you know that's the same thing as as the as the you know post-climax state of, of the, the eradication of the motivation. But I think what you're saying also is like, if you, you, you know, somebody who's had that pair bonded relationship with their, not alter ego, but like their, their female self, let's say, you know, you know, 20, 30 years, the, that, that kind of emotional romantic attachment is more vital than the, than the, the actual physical sexual uh, component of it, in which case, um, yeah, yeah, a, a, a complete, you know, surgical uh, intervention, you know, could could potentially make sense. Certainly if there's um, uh, uh, significant dysphoria at the general region, which is often, as I understand it, you know, in, in the case of autogynophiles kind of progresses into later life is, is oftentimes the, um, 
uh, and again, tell me if I'm completely off the mark here, but um, in, in the younger AGPs, um, it's, it's more, it's more about, you know, kind of living the fantasy, but then as the body, um, you know, continuously negate, uh, you know, contradicts that fantasy, that's where the dysphoria sets in, where the natal sex, you know, like having a penis and, and testicles and, and other kind of things that, that signify a male body cause great distress and dysphoria and, and then eradicating those, those that cause dysphoria is maybe more of an, more, uh, more of a motivator than, than the sexual gratification of having a vagina. Yeah. I, ag okay. I agree with what you're saying. And uh, people who've, I mean, it's been known for a long, long time, for many decades, that the autogynophilic type of gender dysphoria tends to be a progressive condition. You know, it's very common that with a biological male, it starts out with basically as a masturbatory activity, which more or less ends after ejaculation. But as the male ages, then thoughts of being a woman, thoughts of wanting to be like a woman start to occur outside of periods of strong sexual arousal until the person begins to think of himself as a woman all the time, sexually aroused or not. And uh, autogynophilic gender dysphoria is very different from homosexual gender dysphoria in this way, uh, in, in, in this characteristic of being progressive throughout somebody's 20s and their 30s and their 40s, getting more and more gender dysphoric until you start having guys. Well, I remember when I first started working at the gender clinic, they had just approved for surgery, a guy who, a male to female who was over 70 and who first, uh, you know, made an effort to obtain sex reassignment at about the age of 70. Now that's an extreme case, but the point here is that this is progressive. Autogynophilic gender dysphoria tends to be progressive. That's wildly different from homosexual gender dysphoria, which if anything, um, it, you know, it probably max, maxes out for a lot of people uh, by puberty and then many just, uh, you know, adapt to their anatomic sex. So homosexual gender dysphoria is almost anti-progressive. It, it tends to dissipate on its own in many cases, not all cases, obviously. So it has a, uh, a reverse kind of natural history from autogynophilic gender dysphoria. Which type, <clears throat> thinking, you know, putting my clinician hat on, which type do you think would be most responsive to, to psychotherapy? Because it, it, I guess I'm thinking about the, the desistance studies too, that um, most most children with with gender dysphoria would probably be the homosexual type that would desist by or through through puberty, um, which suggests to to me that that psychotherapy could be helpful for that consolidation process. Whereas AGP, if we think of that as you know, we've, we've been criticized in the past for calling it a sexual orientation, but I find it helpful to think of it that way just because it's more multi dimensional. Um, but I wouldn't think that that could be treated or converted in any way through psychotherapy or have you found that there's some success in in being able to to change i mean we is there any evidence that that a that a target location error could be changed or altered in any way through psychotherapy well that's a good question i'm, I'm afraid i have to answer it with speculation more than with facts I need to explain that when I worked at the gender identity clinic, those 15 years, 
we were an agency that um, was mandated by the government to approve provincial uh, third-party payment for all Ontario residents who uh, were interested in sex reassignment. We were the only clinic in Ontario that was empowered to recommend uh, reimbursement, to authorize reimbursement. And other Canadian provinces also sent their patients to us. So we basically were an assessment clinic. We didn't very much provide any kind of ongoing treatment. And we were in no position to provide any kind of ongoing treatment because the patients we saw were from all over Ontario, which was a big place to start with, and then all over Canada. So, you know, I think people have the idea that we saw these patients and provided therapy to them. In the main, that's not true. Somebody might have a pet patient that they made a special exemption to see for therapy, and the patient happened to live in Toronto. But basically, we, um, we didn't do therapy. That's a long preamble to say, I don't have firsthand experience in trying to uh, somehow clinically manage autogynephilia in an adult. My suspicion is probably with the lesser gender dysphoric autogynephiles who really are ambivalent and in some moods would like somebody help them to keep a lid on it because they don't want to trash their marriage. They don't want to alienate themselves from their children. Yeah, some kind of, of psychotherapy could probably help people uh, cope with dysphoric feelings, cope with controlling themselves, just as psychotherapy can help people with other kinds of uh, erotic interests, which basically are problematic for them. So I see no reason to think that you couldn't, in some cases, help a biological male to stay in the male role and live with autogynephilia. But I can't, I would be lying if I said, I have experience in doing this. And I also don't know of any systematic research that really shows uh, that you could do this and that it will stick. So what, what you're kind of saying is, is like therapy um, or speculating on it would be therapy to kind of help somebody deal with their autogynephilia in a healthy, you know, non-life destroying way to kind of keep it you know, you know, to, to a private realm, but like you're um, not so likely would be altering that autogynephilic paraphilia, right? Like, um, would, is that possible? I guess it would be. I don't think that you can uh, alter any established erotic interest, but you can certainly teach people to suppress them. And I don't see what much of what else you have to go with if you're dealing with people who are, who are pedophiles, who are sexually attracted to children. If you're dealing with people who have very serious, dangerous, sadistic impulses, not S&M play, but you know, really wanting to kidnap somebody and torture them and kill them. I mean, you don't, you don't you, I don't think you can eliminate these feelings, but I see no reason to think that in many cases, uh, you should not be able to help the person control themselves if they're already motivated to try and get a handle on controlling impulses that are just going to trash their own life. And we've been talking mostly about um, dysphoric males, but, you know, natal males. It does. Um, is there an equivalent of autogynephilia in natal females? Uh, that's a good question. And, and people have brought it up before. Uh 
Okay, there are two points. So you'll have to remind me that I get back to both of them. One of them is what do I think occurs in natal females? And what have other people tried to claim about natal females? Uh, there was one study. Well, I see no reason to be excessively charitable. I would call it a Mickey Mouse study, which purported to show autogynephilia in, in females. Uh, they, somebody gave questionnaires to some small number, a few dozens of nurses uh, with questions that they adapted from the questions I asked biological males. And on the basis of this, uh, they concluded that is normal for cis, hetero, whatever, biological females to be sexually aroused at the idea of being women. I don't believe that. I think that's nonsense. I think the study was very flawed. Uh, I think that, of course, biological women uh, might have sexual fantasies. Uh, I personally don't think that there is autogynephilia in biological females. Somebody did conduct one study, which I would say is a very weak study, consisted of handing out questionnaires to a small number of women. I think it was like a few dozen nurses at some hospital. The questionnaire items were not even the same as the questionnaire items that I used to assess autogynephilia in biological males. And on the basis of this uh, questionnaire, the author, uh, Moser, Charles Moser, concluded that women, biological women, also are sexually aroused by the idea of being women, by the simple thought of being women. And this study is cited everywhere by trans activists as proof that Blanchard has been debunked, discredited, uh, shown in every way to be invalid, uh, and that, of course, women uh, are also sexually aroused at the idea of being women. Now, I venture that if you grab the average woman on the street and said, did you ever get wet trying to put your panties on? They would say no. So why did this study, which as I said, is a pretty Mickey Mouse study, why did it achieve such popularity? Because it said something that a certain type of trans activist needed to be said. They didn't they, if they couldn't totally deny the existence of autogynephilia, then they had to make it something that all women have. So that a history of autogynephilia does not make you unlike a woman, it makes you exactly like a woman. So that was half of what I wanted to say about the existing evidence, uh, whether or not women have autogynephilia. I don't think that they do. And I happen to know that there are some uh, researchers who have a study in the pipeline, which essentially would be another, a replication of the one study I just told you about, but knowing the research is probably done a lot better. And I expect it's going to show that uh, women do not become sexually excited by the simple thought of having breasts or a vagina or knitting or cleaning the house or being called ma'am or any of the things that are, are arousing to autogynephilic men. Now, the other variant of your question might be, do biological women have something that's analogous to autogynephilia, namely the thought of themselves as being males? And I also, now here I'm on less firm footing 
by far, because when I worked at a gender clinic, we didn't see very many biological females who said, I want to become a male and live my life as a gay male. We only saw a few in the 15 years I was there, but, and I don't know if I even interviewed any of either of them, but my colleagues did, and my colleagues were good interviewers. And the feeling I got from, you know, discussing the cases was they weren't so much interested in just picturing themselves with a penis and being excited by that. They seemed to be interested in the idea of being a gay man and of having gay sex with other males, which seemed to me a little bit different from the autogynophilic case. And so uh, my short answer is, I don't think women either have autogynophilia, nor do I think they develop, or very many of them uh, develop an exact analog of autogynophilia, arousal at the mere idea of being men. I think there are some who develop erotic arousal at the idea of being gay men and having sex with gay men. So in that case, the, the erotic target would still be another human being would they you know they would have genuine attraction to to gay men whereas with agp the erotic target is their own self or their own body is that the primary difference yeah yeah yeah. i mean i think sure a lot of autogynophiles gender dysphoric autogynophiles describe themselves as lesbians but i think that's secondary i think what you start with is i'm i'm sexually attracted to women I'm sexually attracted to the idea of myself as a woman. What do I do with that? Oh, wait, I'm a lesbian. That's perfect. They're sexually attracted to women and they are women. That's what I am. I'm a lesbian. But I think that I'm a lesbian is kind of a resolution of the conflicting impulses of wanting to have a woman and wanting to be a woman. I don't think that's the case with the biological females. I think with them, they start with the idea of the idea of homosexuality between men is hot to me, and I'd like to participate in it as a male. Um, as I said, I don't have a lot of experience with those cases, but that's my impression that there's a subtle difference. Does kind of go back to kind of um, female sexuality being more kind of relational and social, socially based, and and male sexuality being more ob- object oriented. Yeah, that's that's that. You're right. It does fit in with that. I hadn't thought of it that way. I should mention that you know less people you know because people often fantasize uh, what I and what my gender clinic was like back in the old days. We did. Uh, those the two cases I can specifically remember who presented uh, during that time uh, c- clearly stating that they they felt that they were gay men and wanted to become gay men. We did approve surgery for both of them, and as far as I know, they both did fine after surgery. But these patients had been living as men. And they were sexually experienced with men and sexually experienced with men who were willing to engage with them sexually as if they were two gay men. So these were not naive teenagers who are sitting in their bedrooms and developing some fantasy of, oh, gee, I think it would be cool to be a gay man. 
these were uh, individuals who had, had walked the walk. They had lived as males. They had been sexually experienced with males. They knew what they were getting into. They understood what the parameters were uh, before we approved them for surgery. So I think approving those cases for surgery was the right decision. I think, however, among this new contingent, the rapid onset gender dysphoria kids, I have the impression some whack of them are girls, teenage girls, who have the idea that it would be cool to be gay men, but these girls do not have a real life experience of trying to live as males uh, or of trying to find gay male sexual partners who are going to regard the absence of a penis as an unimportant detail, like somebody having the hair color that you don't prefer. I wanted to, to make that point because I thought, you know, a lot of people are going to say, oh yeah, but yeah, 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 yeah. You know, there's lots of girls presenting now who want to become gay men uh, and, and why shouldn't they? And I think that my, the positive experiences of my clinic with these kinds of cases really don't bear on teenagers who have no experience of living in the world as men or of trying to find sexual and romantic partners among gay men without, without a phalloplasty or with a phalloplasty, which is not going to pass muster among connoisseurs of penises, <laughs> which gay men are going to be. What were you finding the ratios to be between the uh, homosexual type and the non-homosexual type? Uh, the last time I looked at that, I don't remember when I published it back in the 80s, I guess. It, at that point already, there were more of the autogynophilic type of male patients than the homosexual type. Uh, it was maybe like, I don't know, three to two or something. Now I suspect the ratio is much higher. You know, in those, in those days, uh, a biological male had to give up a lot to, uh, to pursue life as a woman. Uh, divorce was essentially inevitable. Uh, alienation from children occurred in a large proportion of cases. Of course, of course patients went into this uh, hope, hoping that their wife would uh, say, okay, now you're a woman, I still love you and we'll live together as two lesbian women and fantasies that their children would get on board with it. But in many cases that didn't turn out to be true. So there were, and also, you know, there was more social stigma. Now to use the cliche coming out as uh, trans in middle age when you're already a husband and father is quote stunning and brave and people laud the patient and, uh, kind of ignore the, the, the wife and children. So I think that with the social stigma being reduced, that there are a lot more of the autogynophilic slash non-homosexual patients presenting, whereas the number of the homosexual cases has remained pretty constant. It almost seems to, it's not even just a reduction of stigma. Um, it's it's uh, it's glamorized and and kind of and, and as you said lauded uh, to a capacity like over just being being a straight man right in, in many circles certainly in in, in progressive circles um, it's like that's a way to elevate your status um, coming out as trans uh, it, it's yeah again 
uh, it, it's seen as as uh, yep, yeah, some, some like a, a kind of um, a purity. You've, you've you're st- no longer a straight white man. You're you know the most beautiful and marginalized of lesbians. So it has a like yeah. Not only is there no stigma, or obviously there's still plenty of stigma in, in certain certain quadrants of society. But um, you know, in, in our in our blue spheres, it's quite um, quite celebrated. Um, and then. And then on the flip side of that, I think it's even more dangerous when we're talking about the young people getting swept up in it. Because right now, uh, in online circles, it's um, and even even real life circles, you know, it's it's there's 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 vilification and stigma in being cis and straight, right? And so so young people are doing anything that they can to to opt out of 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 that. I'm going in a different direction here, changing the subject a bit, but um, but yeah, it's uh, it, it seems to be like with the, the demographic that you would have been seeing in the eighties uh, it's kind of flipped on its head as far as what you're losing and, and giving up uh, when it comes to, to transition. And, and obviously the vast majority of people are heterosexual. Uh, so we're going to see this, uh, the, the, those, yeah, the numbers are going to be even, even more misaligned or not misaligned, but more, more uh, skewed in the direction of uh, non-homosexual transsexual than they were, you know, three decades ago. Yeah, I agree with you. And, you know, a lot of the work I did on typology really doesn't apply to the ROGD, the rapid onset gender dysphoria kids, who I think are probably a very mixed bag, uh, which might include some who would have been diagnosed as classical transsexuals whenever they presented. But there's also a large proportion, maybe majority of kids who basically have personality disorders, adjustment disorders, maybe they're just terminally silly, um, uh, who, who would not have been uh, you know, covered by the typological work that I had done back in the 80s and early 90s. When we talk about gender dysphoria, it, one of the things that I've found difficult to understand is whether we would consider, if you think of gender dysphoria as like the, the hub of a wheel, like are there different pathways to this thing called gender dysphoria? Or do you see these two types as completely different and unrelated to one another? I, I see them, I see the, the two classical types as converging on uh, extreme gender dysphoria and the request for surgery and hormones to, to change the body. Um, for that reason, I never in my right, in the, the clinicians before me were all very invested in which type is the true transsexual. I mean, a lot of ink was spilled over which type is the true transsexual. And, you know, there would be these kind of competitions, you know, uh, amongst different psychoanalytic writers, you know, my type is true. No, no, my type is true. Uh, I never used that terminology. I certainly, I can appreciate why a lot of people would see the homosexual male to female as true because they just feel different, you know, uh, from the autogonophilic type. They feel more feminine. But my my way of looking at it was uh, once you reach the once you reach the maximum level of gender dysphoria and the same range the same range of clinical solutions is available, that they're equally true. Now, 
I'm not sure how that answers your question. I think that when you look at those patients, they still have a flavor of where they came from. Just like, uh, you know, somebody who was born in France speaking English has a different accent in English than somebody born in Germany speaking in English has. And I think you can think of it that way, that, that transsexuals retain the accent of of where they came from. But I don't, I never, I resisted the idea that clinical decisions should be based on that uh, rather than on intensity of gender dysphoria and the best available solution. Because even with the, um, with autogynophiles, at the point at which they may come to a clinic saying, I want to actually change sex, it's not necessarily because it's not necessarily sexually motivated at that point, is it? I mean, it could be that, that the actual distress about their body, which we would call gender dysphoria, has that part has, has progressed. I, I, this gets back to what I tried to say before is, you know, how do you conceptualize what is sexually motivated? Right. You know, we think of it as sexually motivated is what, ha- is, is what a guy is experiencing when he's got an erection. And, you know, I don't, I think we could say it's based in sexual motivation. Maybe it becomes something else. Uh, does it 100% lose all of its ties somewhere in the depths of the brain to sexual orientation? I don't know. Probably not, but. It's a misconception with the homosexual subtype as well, because both of these types are linked to sexual orientation in, in one way or another. Um, I remember I did a uh, an interview with for Rebel News a while ago, and and when that was posted to their Facebook page, um, in all the comments underneath, it was like keep it to the bedroom, as if all of this is just about you know a kink of some kind, even the homosexual subtype of gender dysphoria. What what would you say? What is the develop, developmental pathway for gender dysphoria in the homosexual subtype? I guess I think of the homosexual subtype as basically they start out as sissy boys or tomboy girls who, unlike the majority of people in that class, do not normalize in gender identity when they hit puberty. So I think what you could, what you could say with the, the homosexual type of biological males or females, it's not so much that they develop something new as it is that they don't shed something that many other seemingly similar kids shed as they, as they hit puberty or their teenage years. For them, it's a continuation of behaviors that were present from a very young age. I know when I've searched through my own memories and trying to articulate my own experience of gender dysphoria, you know, as a, as a young child, I've been because we get into so much trouble when we we try to find words for something that doesn't really make sense to most people. And then we've attached to certain words so much like this idea of a gender identity, for example, that, that, you know, we've, we've called it that, but, and we've attached to that idea to the point where we almost believe in this sort of gendered soul um, is how the narrative is, is spun off of that. But I, I think of, I think a better way to describe what I experienced um is like a co- cognitive categorization error that I just had so many natural boyish tendencies that in a naive young mind, I just 
kind of categorize myself as as male and I can understand how as a person gets older and you're you're um, integrating more sophisticated information and then your sexuality wakes up that 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 categorization error would would correct itself unless something is disrupting disrupting that would you would you agree with that that use of like a cognitive categorization error in the homosexual subtype in the case of like a sissy boy or or a very masculine girl uh, yeah, actually, I do think that something like that exists. I don't think it's necessarily conscious. I don't think it's necessarily formulated in words, but yeah. I think at, I think with the young kids at some level, there is what you call a categorization error. Uh, and I think that that probably is maybe one of the few really useful uses of the phrase gender identity is when you're talking about kids who are so young that they that that what you observe is that they're systematically imitating members of the opposite sex and not members of their own sex and i think their gender identity is a useful concept to explain why when all the other kids are imitating adults of their own sex is this kid imitating uh, adults of the opposite sex. I think the word gender identity is useful in that context. Uh, now, gender identity has so many other meanings. It's become a, a replacement for biological sex and this and that, that unfortunately, uh, it's, it's a, become a phrase that probably creates more misunderstandings than, than clarifications. I know that towards the end of uh, the period when I was doing a lot of writing uh, in the air, in this area, I began avoiding using the phrase gender identity in my writings. And I talked instead about gender dysphoria because I thought, well, I know what gender dysphoria is. You know, you can, <laughs> if somebody comes in and says, I'm, I'd like my penis removed and replaced with the vagina, please, I could say, yeah, it's pretty safe. This person has gender dysphoria. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I've, as you are well aware, I mean, that the whole narrative around this has changed so much over the last 40 years. Um, you know, and now, now we just call it all trans and it's all the same. And, um, that we all have the same kind of gender dysphoria and, and there's just, there's simply just different sexual orientations of, of trans people. Why do you think um, the topology is important? Why do you think it's important to retain that, that information that there are actually different types of, of motivations for transition transition? I think it's important for two separate reasons. I think it's important for science. If you're interested in someday finding out what causes gender dysphoria, you have to separate your cases into etiologically homogeneous groups if you're going to get anywhere. You know, if you have some idea that you're going to look for, you're going to find some part of the brain that looks like it's shifted uh, in a cross-gender direction in, in transsexuals, well, you might find it in one category of transsexuals, but not in another. So for scientific purposes, I think it's essential that you be able to classify patients according to etiology or probable etiology. And saying this, this is not novel to studying gender identity. People who study any kind of 
behavioral or psychiatric or psychological condition have to begin by diagnosis and by separating apart cases that might seem superficially similar because they present with the same spectacular symptom, uh, but probably got there by different means. So A, we need typology for research. B, for, for prognostic purposes, I think it, it could also be relevant. I, I, did, I did one study on regrets in, uh, po in post-operative, uh, I think they were all post-operative, uh, male to females. And I found a slight tendency for the non-homosexual slash autogynophilic types to have more second thoughts about transition. And uh, I predict that with a group that was less highly screened than ours was, uh, you're gonna see eventually a lot more cases reverting to the female role who are coming from the uh, autogynophilic camp. So in terms of prognosis, which is a clinical issue, not a research issue, it's a class, it's a, a practical issue. I think it makes sense to say, this is a patient of this type, and maybe we should be just a little teeny bit more cautious in this case, because they have a higher uh, rate of second thoughts or in the worst case scenario, uh, detransitioning. Yeah, it's remarkable to me the the number of um, there's there's a therapist out of the UK um, I, I forget his name um, but he he said he's seen a number of autogynophile post operatives who have uh, regret about their surgery they often you know, obviously they didn't have the surgery in the UK they went to typically I think Thailand and had it performed uh, but he's seen quite a number of this cohort and uh, I see similar posts on social media and stuff in detrans uh, uh, spaces people have expressing extreme regret over having uh, SRS you know male to female transitioners um, and it's remarkable to me how how many of them seem to not understand the fact that that their that their desire to transition is very much rooted in their testicles, and you know you, you remove that, and then the the, the regret obviously sets in. Um, so it, it's just remarkable to me that like I was seeing a, a post of this uh, uh, this this male to female transitioner who had an orchiectomy, and he was saying that he. Um, you know, basically was really surprised after the fact that he no longer, you know, basically his girlfriend still wanted to have sex with him, but he, or with her and uh, she didn't want to anymore. Like she had no, no sexual response. Basically it was like, have I made this huge mistake? And just the, the utter, uh, confusion and confoundedness that this dec drastic decrease in, 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 uh, sexual response had occurred. Um, it, it seems it's, it's quite flabbergasting to me that, that, this, this escapes a lot of the male to female transitioners. And it seems to be very, very modern now, rooted in the trans ideology that having these feelings mean you really are a woman and that going in this direction is therefore uh, the, the right course of action, you know, transitioning entirely is, is what you should do. Um, so, so the notion that talking about autogynophilia and talking about the fact that this is where the motivation comes from, uh, that that is transphobic in and of itself, um, well, is, is I don't want to use the word transphobic in the other direction, but it, it means it's there. So it seems to me that so much harm is being done by trying to suppress your work and the work of other people who are talking about the typology and 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 the in the you know the, the the very fundamental difference in those two typologies. Um, 
anyway, yeah, so it just seems like so much harm is being done by the ideological framework um, that, that it's surprising to me that and one individuals who are seeking those surgeries are completely that, that they don't understand where that motivation is coming from and that uh, that, that it's being, you know, uh, clinically uh, enabled uh, by by the same kind of ideological capture. Um, sorry, that wasn't a question. It was just a thought that got me rambling. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, uh, in the old days, I know it's horrible when you get old and you find yourself saying this all the time, but, uh, you know, in the old days, we made sure the patients understood what they were getting into. If, if we had a patient that really had magical thinking that they were going to really literally change sex from, from top to the bottom of their chromosomes, we would consider that a counterindication for surgery, you know? We felt that patients needed to have a realistic understanding of what surgery and hormones would do and wouldn't do. And, and uh, we would have thought it was a bad sign if patients didn't seem to grasp uh, what the limitations were of the procedure. Now, I don't know how many gender clinics uh, uh, make that kind of appraisal or, or have that kind of concern about their patients. What you were saying about, you know, the value of the typology, one of the values is being the science. I've noticed a lot of like MRI studies, you know, they're, they're trying to find that holy grail, right, of, of some biomarker for um, transsexualism. But I notice a lot of those studies, they don't um, control for sexual orientation. So I, I, I just wonder about the validity of any of that data then if, if they're lining up just a bunch of transsexuals of different orientations and... Uh, and scanning their brains. I don't know, even if there was this holy grail that existed in, in some types of gender dysphoria, I wouldn't expect them to find that in both the homosexual and the, the non-homosexual types. And, and so I just wonder about the value of that science then if they're not controlling for sexual orientation. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with you. And when I read, read research that uh, talks about transsexuals as if they were a monolithic entity and makes no attempt to specify uh, what kind of transsexual are you talking about. I basically assume at that point that this research is gonna be garbage. Now, sometimes you can tell from reading other stuff in a manuscript, oh, all these cases were of the homosexual type, they just don't say it. And sometimes you can write to the authors and, and find, and they will say, oh yeah, they were all, blah, blah, blah. So sometimes you can salvage the data by other information that the, that the authors didn't stress or by writing them directly. But I agree with you. I mean, I, like, as I said, if I see research that talks about, let's say, MRIs of transsexuals and doesn't acknowledge that there are different, uh, probably ideologically different categories, I just say this is garbage and I'm not going to concern myself with it. Now, I have a lot of other reservations with existing MRI research, one being that in other fields of uh, MRI research, you know, findings are overthrown quite often because people are looking at samples that are too small. So I don't know how many studies of transsexuals have been ruined because they didn't uh, start out with a diagnostically homogeneous group because these studies at this stage in 2021 are often too small to say, this is going to be a definitive, would have been a definitive study in any case, even with the most meticulously screened uh, subjects. 
There was a tweet um, that I that I read one of yours fairly recently that I, I was curious about, and I think it was something along the lines of that that the um, the line between a butch lesbian and gender dysphoria it, that 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 line is a little bit more blurry than than between a you know the sissy boy and um, and gender dysphoria. I just wondered wanted to ask you about that and, and what you meant by that why that, that line for, for the natal females would be a little more blurry than with the natal males. I remember that tweet. Uh, this was a common observation of clinicians at the time that I started working in the area of gender identity, which as I've said was 1980 when I got into it. And so a lot of people believe that. And it seemed it kind of made sense to me that the line was blurrier because I knew that there were very butch lesbians, you know, stone dykes or whatever they're called, who, when they would have sex with their girlfriends, would have rules. Like they could touch their girlfriend's breasts or vagina, which naturally what you would want to do during sex, but uh, they wouldn't want or allow a girlfriend, the femme of the pair, to touch their own breasts or vagina, or they would keep a t-shirt on uh, during sex so that their breasts were not in evidence. And these were women, uh, lesbians who did not uh, call themselves trans, but just thought of themselves as butch lesbians. But this kind of behavior, don't touch my breast, don't touch my vulva, this is what you see in, um, you know, transsexual females, you know, who don't want to be reminded of their biological sex. Uh, during sexual encounters with with females. So it seemed to me plausible that, yeah, it does kind of look like you're seeing some behaviors in the butch lesbians that shade into the kind of stuff you see from uh, fully transsexual female to males. Now, you could argue, well, maybe you would say that same kind of spectrum in male and homosexual males if you looked for it. That's true. Maybe you would. Uh, but I don't know about drag queens saying, uh, uh, you know, nobody can touch my penis when I'm having sex. Maybe this exists. Maybe it doesn't. I've never heard about it. I wonder if one, I've, I've thought about that. Um, I mean, it makes sense that there would be more needle males transitioning than needle females, just in the fact that with needle males, there's two types of gender dysphoria and EGP being the, the, the dominant one. So that alone, I mean, it would make sense that the ratios between males and females transitioning would be different. But I also wondered with the butch lesbians, um, if maybe part of why they, they didn't have the same drive to transition was because of the existence of the butch femme subculture. And if they found ways that they felt supported and, and affirmed within that culture in a way that they didn't feel the same need to, to transition. Cause I'm not aware of a, of a parallel in the gay male community where, you know, sissy boys and, and really masculine men that has, you know, that, that, that was a whole subculture in, in gay male culture. And maybe it exists and I'm not aware of it, but I, I don't, I don't certainly don't hear about that subculture as much as I would hear about the butch femme subculture in lesbians. That's, you know, my impression as well is that within the lesbian 
I hate to say community. I'm just so sick of that word in general. But (laughs) 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 amongst lesbians, there seems to me, from my casual observation, to be a much stronger tendency for people to identify as femme or butch and to uh, structure their relationships accordingly. I haven't, I don't know if that exists or exists to the same extent among gay men. Because I've heard some um, HSTS uh, 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 male to female transsexuals say something along the lines of, had I not transitioned to female, I probably wouldn't have found the, the partner I really wanted to, you know, to partner with. They, they really wanted to partner with a very masculine man and have what they would consider a sort of a normal picket, white picket fence lifestyle. And they didn't feel that as a, as a gay, very feminine gay man that they could, they would find a suitable partner and, and have the lifestyle that they, they wanted. Did, would you say that that theme is something that you observed in your research? Yeah, this is, this is a point on which Mike Bailey and I have had some back and forth, um, not really so much a disagreement uh, uh, in substance, but moreover a disagreement in emphasis. I think that, I mean, clearly uh, the, male to fe- the male to female transsexuals of the homosexual type for partners, for prospective partners, they want heterosexual men. They don't want, they don't want gay men. Uh, and so I think it's easy to make a jump from that and say that the homosexual male to females transition in order to attract heterosexual men. I think that's too strong a formulation. I think it's undoubtedly, undoubtedly true. Yes, they want heterosexual men, but I don't think that they do the surgical and hormonal transition for the sole purpose of attracting heterosexual men. I think they mostly do it uh, to feel more comfortable in society. And, you know, some of them are just so feminine that no matter how hard they tried to butch it up, it wasn't going to work, you know? So they make a, they make a kind of calculated decision. Well, I can't butch it up. So I'll go the whole other way and, and be a woman. And this will make me, I'll come out the other end as normal. Yeah. That's, that's a helpful clarification. Um, and I also want to point out, which people tend to, uh, when people talk about this, about homosexual male to females wanting heterosexual male partners and putting a huge emphasis on that, I want to point out something that, you know, is often overlooked. Transsexual, transsexual homosexual males are not the only ones who find heterosexual men hot and would like to get their hands on them, you know? <laughs> Uh, so it, it, this does not, this desire or, or attraction, preferential attraction to heterosexual males is not uh, uh, a clear diagnostic indicator of gender dysphoria in a homosexual man, because it's not unique to transsexual homosexual males. It's because it's it's more like it seems that uh, within gay gay male spheres, um, masculinity and heterosexuality in men is actually quite um, favored, right? So it seems like like masculinity is the um, uh, is sought after, um, femininity not so much. Whereas in in the case in in lesbian communities, masculinity is celebrated, you know, 
unlike you know femininity in in um, gay male communities. Uh, My impression is that as as the two of you have already pointed out that masculine gay men are much more prized and much higher in the hierarchy, much more desired as sexual partners than feminine gay men. Now, there might be some guys who like uh, effeminate partners. I don't know. My feeling is that that they're at the bottom, that they're at the bottom wrong. And if, if they are defecting to become female to male transsexuals, nobody would be bemoaning the fact because they were, you know, they were below the waterline anyway. They weren't what people were looking for, for sexual partners. So it wouldn't be the same uh, sense of our community as being eroded the way many lesbians feel about the wholesale conversion of butch lesbians to becoming female to male trans. I, I don't, yeah, I don't know how that, how that translates into, into social engineering. I mean, I, I think it's very difficult to establish something like a, a, a societally accepted third gender as they have in Samoa or, uh, you know, other places in the Far East, maybe not as formalized as the Samoan Fafina, but other places in the Far East where there's a recognized social role for effeminate uh, males who basically are dressing as women most of the time, uh, but without surgery. I think it's hard to take those kinds of social structures and graft them onto a Western society. I don't know whether that can be done. It's a nice idea. It would be nice if uh, it would be nice for, you know, if, if butch lesbians were uh, given a way to live that would not require hormones or surgery. I don't know if it can be done. I just don't know. And also, you know, I I think this is one of the cases where trying to talk about gay men and lesbian women in symmetrical ways kinds of breaks down for reasons like you've, as you've already alluded to, butch lesbians are prized within the lesbian community, but feminine males are the bottom of the heap in the gay male community. So it's hard to come up, formulate some kind of abstract solution that applies to both male and female homosexuality because they're not symmetrical all the way down the line. Yeah, that's a good point. Just on the topic of, gen- of the gender critical um, folks, what would you see as the primary difference between your concept of gender dysphoria, the, you know, the research-based concept of gender dysphoria versus the, the, the gender critical concept of gender dysphoria? Well, because of, partly because of my background, I guess, I basically see gender dysphoria as a type of mental disorder. Now, people, of course, just freak out at that phrase mental disorder and immediately they think it means you're barking mad and and are hearing voices and think that somebody is putting microphones hidden around your house and whatnot. Uh, But actually, there, there are all sorts of mental disorders that can be quite circumscribed in their effects and leave people with uh, average or sometimes uh, very superior ability to function in other spheres of life. So I want to be clear that, you know, although I, there's, I don't want to, you know, 
obfuscate my language by piling euphemism upon euphemism. So I'm going to say mental disorder, but what I mean by mental disorder does not mean you're absolutely, totally crazy all of the time. It could just mean some particular psychological trait that needs special consideration, special accommodation. So my, my conceptualization of, of, of trans phenomena is that it's basically uh, a mental disorder, which uh, if it cannot be treated by other means, can be palliated by having the person transition uh, to the opposite sex by the use of surgery and hormones and by some reasonable amount of social accommodation. But my starting point is mental disorder. And you look at everything as flowing from mental disorder. The gender critical folk, I think in a weird way, have adopted the same approach as the trans activists in that they, they only want to talk about socio-political phenomena. And neither group talks very much about the psychiatric causes of gender dysphoria. So, you know, I see gender critical people writing tweets in which they are in so many words or clearly asserting that autogonophilic transsexualism is the result of patriarchy, sexism, and misogyny. I think that that's completely wrong. It's a complete misunderstanding of what gender dysphoria in autogonophilic males is about. I think that gender critical feminists talk this way because they're not interested in what causes gender dysphoria. They're interested in the effects of gender dysphoric males on their lives, on women's lives. And from the standpoint of a gender critical feminist, the effect of having, let's say an autogynophilic husband is the same as the effects of other kinds of abuse caused by sexism, misogyny, and patriarchy. But I think that they are confusing cause and effect, and they're never gonna understand uh, what autogynophilic male to female transsexuals are all about if they just keep reusing the conceptual entities they're used to, patriarchy, sexism, misogyny, and try to apply them to males who have motivations and a psychology that's really entirely alien to women. It's a good point. I mean, it's certainly as, as a researcher and, and a clinician, it certainly isn't your responsibility to work out everything downstream, you know, all of the policy and all of the, the sociology of this, um, you know, when you said reasonable accommodation, um, for transition. I mean, what that means is probably different from in from environment to environment and needs to be negotiated probably quite individually. And, but it's I wouldn't expect you to have all the answers about everything that happens downstream and, and how we organize our culture around this. I mean you're just you're just researching, well, what is this what is this clinical phenomenon? Yeah, well I mean I I I I mean, I did do some work on on trying to see that 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 the patients that we approved for surgery were doing okay. I mean, I couldn't, although my personal interest was in what you would what used to be called uh, descriptive pathology. I couldn't just totally blow off my responsibility as a researcher working in a gender clinic to see how patients were doing 
who uh, underwent sex reassignment or social gender reorientation. And I did grind out uh, a bunch of papers in that regard. And I found what everybody else found, which was that the majority of patients who were properly screened uh, said, yeah, I'm glad I did it. I feel better and I'd do it again. Uh, what did proper screening look like? It was pretty rigid with us. We required that the patient live for two years as the opposite sex before they were even considered eligible for being approved for surgery. And during those two years, they had to either work or attend school in the cross-gender role. Or if they were really elderly, then we would re require them to do something else like volunteer for some charity uh, and, and do their volunteer activities in the cross-gender role. And we would require them to provide us with documentation. So if somebody said, uh, yeah, I have a job now and I'm now working as, as uh, Mary instead of Martin, they had to prove to us that they were employed as Mary and not as Martin. So that, you know, you couldn't have a patient just stay in their apartment and order pizza delivery and say, well, you know, I'm wearing a dress and I'm now living as the opposite sex. They had to prove that, that they were living as the opposite sex. This had a, this had a couple of, uh, this, this I've supported this very strongly in my clinic for, for a variety of reasons. One was that we had various psychiatric consultants who worked there. And I, I would see that sometimes clinicians brought their own idiosyncratic views as to whether a patient was appropriate, whether a patient was really transsexual. Um, I, I think I worked with really, really good psychiatrists. I respected all of them, but some of them, some of them would occasionally bring in their bring in uh, their, like I said, their own idiosyncratic judgments. And sometimes you get patients who are really hateful, miserable people. There's no two ways about it. The fact that they're transsexual is, is kind of ancillary. And you don't like patients who are unlikable. And so I thought I very much supported the idea of the real life test because this was objective. The patient was doing it or they weren't. And I thought that it helped eliminate the subjectivity of psychiatric judgment. That was one reason why I supported it. Another reason was the diagnostic impact. To some extent, it screened out the more intensely gender dysphoric from the less intensely gender dysphoric. It also, you know, just being gender dysphoric does not mean that you're gonna hack it in the cross-gender role. It just means you would like to. If the patient lives in the cross-gender role and provides us with the documentation, we have proof that they can make it in the cross-gender role. I don't think this means that they were literally fooling people about their biological sex, because in many cases, patients had good jobs and they stayed in the job they were already in and just negotiated with their employer that they were now gonna come in as the opposite sex. So passing as the opposite sex in the sense of literally fooling people was often not even an issue. They had to prove that they could be accepted as the opposite sex well enough to maintain a job, to go to school, to live their lives. And there's a fourth reason, which I didn't talk much about in the old days, uh, but that was that uh, 
you had to be fairly psychiatrically stable to go to school for two years or uh, hold a job for two years as the opposite sex. This is not only true of transsexuals, this is true of other people. You know, one of the signal, one of the main symptoms you, you would make in diagnosing somebody as having a serious mental illness is that they're unable to maintain any kind of stable employment. If all you know about them is, geez, here's somebody who has normal intelligence, a decent education, no particular obstacles to them. And yet we have an employment history that consists of bupkis, you know, with one short term thing after another. So it screened out people who were not going to be good examples of post-operative transsexuals to the world at large. You know, mm -hmm. and I didn't I didn't used to talk about that at the time because it sounds like, well, your duty is to the patient, you know, and I kind of thought, yeah, my duty, yeah, our duty is to the patient, but our duty is also to this patient population. And it doesn't do this patient population any good if we're cranking out people who are getting into horrible messes and even worse into the news after being approved for surgery. So the fourth reason for my liking the real life test was it not only tended to screen out those who were engendered dysphoric enough, but it screened out those who were going to be bad, bad poster children for transsexualism. One of the biggest things that's changed, um, you know, in the, in the, in the activism is, I, you know, I think 30 years ago, even 15 years ago, when I first started this, this whole process, we retained our understanding of our own biological sex. And that seems to have, have eroded and, and changed over the last 30 years that, that where people seem to be really pushing this idea that we just, that they truly are the, the sex um, that they, that they wish to be um, it, it, in, I mean, you see people posting all the time or, or talking about that they really are um, that, that, that literal sex change is, is possible. Do you have any, any thoughts about that change, you know, from, from a psychological point of view, do you think there's, do you think there's value in people retaining this, the, you know, the, the idea that I am a transsexual, I, I am, you know, natally male or natally female? Cause it, because it, it, gender dysphoria in itself isn't, isn't a delusion and it, it's in the scientific literature, it's never been called that. Um, <clears throat> but it does seem almost like a, the, almost the creation of a delusion that, that this narrative that, that is now being taught to young people, because when young people are coming to gender clinics now, they're not being taught your typology, they're being taught you know, the, 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 the queer theory narrative and, and that they're truly trans and that, and yes, we can, we can do this exchange. Um, do you think, do you have any concerns about th that change in narrative and the impact that might have on, on patients? Well, I think there has been a change in narrative and the two of you, you know, also other Aaron, Aaron T, you know, might want to comment on it. Uh, it's hard for me to say to what extent uh, the change in narrative is because people are feeding each other quasi-delusional nature uh, notions over the internet. And to what extent is this just a, a kind of 
calculation that a more realistic narrative is not going to play with the general public and we have to push a version of transsexualism that's going to play with the general that's going to work with the general public so it's hard for me to separate out those two things because you know i'm not in the trans community i'm not trans i don't i don't know uh i think certain aspects of being realistic would not would not be good pr you know, everybody says, and I, you know, to some extent, I agree with this. If people were more open about autogynophilia, they would be happier, uh, uh, and maybe, and maybe, uh, you know, not go as far in, in reassignment as they as they do. But you know, I, I think you have to ask realistically: how many people in the gen in the general public would accept an honest explanation of autogynophilia and somebody being honest and saying, I'm an autogynophile and here's what's hot to me sexually, you know, would they be amongst the general uh, public applauded for their honesty uh, and their ability to handle their own emotions and look at them objectively? Or would people just say, well, it's all very well that you're being honest about your feelings, but my God, you're disgusting anyway. I, I mean, I think it's it's some of what the trans activists are doing. I don't like it. I don't agree with it. I don't think I, I, I don't think you can indefinitely enforce contrafactual notions on the general public, but they might not be entirely crazy that some kinds of truth uh, are not palatable to the general public. Yeah, I can certainly understand, you know, trans women going to work or dropping the kids off at school or something, don't necessarily want the whole world to, to be looking at them and thinking of them as an autogynophile. Um, so I can, I can understand in terms of the, as you said, the PR of it, I think makes sense, but it concerns me to, to the degree that the clinicians have lost their, have lost the understanding of, of the clinical aspects of this, of, you know, in an evidence-based, because I mean, the PR and the politics, shouldn't creep into the clinical world to the extent that clinicians are denying the science. Well, I don't think politics have crept into the clinical world. I think they have completely seized the clinical world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's been total ideological capture. Uh, now, I, as I've you know indicated from earlier, I mean, I've, I've been out of that world of front, you know, away from frontline clinical treatment. I don't know who the people are who now work in gender clinics. I expect they're very different people. Uh, in my day, the people who worked in gender clinics were mostly highly trained, either psychiatrists or psychologists. Most of them didn't do gender full time. They mostly had other kinds of patients whom they saw. They had a rounded experience of working with psychiatry patients, psychology patients, patients with a variety of disorders. I kind of think that there are not a lot of people now who are called gender specialists with God knows what kind of credentials who probably are not well-rounded uh, in terms of psychological handling psychological problems in general. Uh, and I, I, so I don't know what they think. You know. I think a lot of it's also been kind of self-selected, like since the, the ideological takeover, 
a lot of the um, uh, kind of kind of equipped and um, uh, ethical cl clinicians, such as yourself, Aaron, have kind of like, well, we I got to get out of this, you know, and and you know, are not actually uh, working with the population anymore just because of the fact that you know that the the ideological the ideology has crept in so far. So you see a lot of uh, a lot of the um, uh, kind of qualified clinicians moving out because they just cannot ethically do it, and a lot of quacks essentially you know filling filling that void and um uh, uh so the, the other thing i wanted to say was the was i think i think so much of that the ideological capture is is kind of uh, enabled by by concept creep of language going back to what you were saying aaron about the whole notion of of like a literal sex change or that you know if you if you say that you're a trans woman that means you're literally female i think so much of that is not it's it's obviously a misuse of the word word literal i think it, it's almost like it, it's just a capture of language more so than a capture of the actual uh, of, of what we're describing I, th I think so much of this is about um you know if, if you refuse to use the the language that validates an identity then then you are somehow um you know morally in the wrong and so so it's not that's what I guess I, I don't I don't know where where the the delusion begins and where just a, a force of of like language uh, begins. You know, it, it seems it seems so much more rooted in kind of making sure everybody uses the appropriate designated language to keep the to keep the validation train moving, and less so really thinking about the details of what's being said, like the actual reality of male and female seems. It's just kind of taking a back seat to the to the, the yeah the constant validation of, of of overtaking language, even including biologically male and female language. Yeah, I I I'm sure that the language is part and parcel of the the reformulation of what the patients are, what their condition is, and and what the best solution is. Uh, and and they certainly have uh, they're the trans activists who are pushing that, and I, I, I'm kind of like beginning to think maybe I shouldn't be calling people like that trans activist because who's a trans activist, right? It's not like you get a certificate. And, uh, <laughs> and I think there are probably a lot of people who think of themselves as trans activists who, you know, are just keyboard warriors. Um, but uh, I forget where I was going, but they certainly are very invested in preserving the language that's being used. And that's uh, for reasons that have been discussed by much smarter people than me about how different kinds of political movements, totalitarian political movements have to restrict the language uh, as a way of restricting thought, trying to restrict the words that are available so that they make it harder to think certain thoughts. And I, I certainly believe that that is an element of what's happening. And I, and I mean, going back to, you know, the understanding that the average autogonophile wouldn't want, you know, their teachers and coworkers to, to know all of the details of their, their sexual fantasies. But I do wonder about, and I, you know, I don't expect you to have an answer to this. It's sort of musing that I wonder about the impact on the young people not having an evidence-based understanding of, of what they're experiencing. Um, I mean, it's all a big, 
a big psychological and social experiment, really, um, because young people who are who are transitioning now aren't being. I, I know I would have benefited from from your typology earlier in life, just for my own processing and understanding what my experience was and and making sense of that and young people today aren't being taught that they're being taught well you're just a trans person I mean we all know what that narrative is right that that's queer theory based politicized narrative where we're not giving young people the opportunity to really understand what they've experienced and we really don't know what the long-term mental health outcomes of that will be no, but I, I, I think they probably won't be good. I, you know, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think you can. I don't think you can take a, a heterogeneous population like like the rapid onset gender dysphoria. Let's just leave aside rapid onset gender dysphoria. I don't think you can take a heterogeneous population like teenagers with gender dysphoria, give them testosterone or estrogen after seeing them once or twice, and think that everything is going to be okay. You know, I, I just. I don't get it. Uh, and I think there's going to be a lot more cases of, of, trans, of detransition and regrets. And uh, all one can hope for is that the detransition cases are ones who stopped with hormones and didn't go for surgery because the surgeries are irreversible, you know? Yeah, it's a fear, fear shared by many, just what the long-term consequences of this is going to be. Well, thank you so much. I don't want to. I don't want to keep you longer. Um, I'm sure, you're a busy, busy man. Um, but thank you so much for agreeing to, to come on the podcast and talk to us. It's been helpful for me to to hear from you and and um, be able to to ask some of the questions that have been on my mind. Well, it was it was fun to meet both of you. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Transparency Podcast. If you enjoy our content, please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe. If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support.